Los Angeles. You're now tuned into Lawson Girl Speaks with award-winning journalist and South Central native Lawson Girl. This is a safe space. Yeah! Celebrating authentic black expression. Where Slauson Girl dives deep into Los Angeles history. Politics and news. <laughs> While discussing culture, race, and identity with carefully curated guests to keep you open-minded in today's society. No cap. Follow Slauson Girl on all social media platforms and stream Slauson Girl Speaks on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You don't want to miss this. She can help you buy or sell your home A luxury or income property Agent Sunny is the one that you want to see Hi, I'm Sunny Jones, your community real estate partner Real estate ownership is key to building generational wealth And it matters who you work with whether you're buying or selling, I am here to help you win. Let's chat. You can find me at agentsunnyjones.com, Facebook, and Instagram, or by text 323-793-7651. If you need a home, call Sunny Jones. 323-793-7651. So when you need a home, call Sunny Jones. When you need a home, call Sunny Welcome to Slauson Girl Speaks. I'm your host, Tina Sampay, also known as Slauson Girl. Today I am joined by Camila Moore, who is currently co-chair of the California Reparations Committee. Camila is a scholar and an attorney with the specialization in entertainment and intellectual property. Um, during her time as a law student, she contributed to human rights reports related to domestic and international human rights issues. While studying abroad at the University of Amsterdam, Camila wrote a master thesis exploring the intersections between international law and repertory justice for the transatlantic slave trade, chattel slavery, and the legacies. She earned a Juris Doctorate from Columbia Law School in New York City, along with a master's of law degree in international criminal law from the University of Amsterdam, along with a bachelor's degree from UCLA. Camila, thank you so much for your time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. It is an honor and a privilege. Um, and that intro was perfect. <laughs> yes, definitely. And likewise, it is definitely an honor to speak with you today um, about this very important topic of reparations. You know, um, it's picked up a lot of traction mm -hmm. in, you know, recent what the last year or two. Yeah. And um, you are playing a very important role as chair of the reparations uh, or the, t the reparations task force. So. Assembly Bill um, AB 3121 was um, enacted in 2020 in September, which established the task force um, to study and develop a reparation proposal for African-Americans. Um, and within that, AB 
3121 mandated the um, California Department of Justice to provide you guys um, resources, yes. um, administrative, technical and legal assistance, um, you know, within your guys' duty with uh, with the task force. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you, um, your educational background is really woven within the intersections of race, law and human rights issues. How do you feel that your educational background prepared you for your current role as chair of the reparations task force? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would even just go back to even elementary school. Mm. <laughs> I grew up in South Central LA. I was kind of, you know, always kind of empowered by my family. And so even in fourth grade, I got me and my friends together to lead a protest and a petition to get, um, know, free uh, salad bars at our school mm. um, because, you know, we know we used to call it county food or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't really that healthy, the free lunch that we got at, um, you know, the L.A. schools. And so we were like, let's do something about it. And so, you know, I hearken even back to like my time even growing up in L.A. as an elementary school student, like the 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 wokeness i guess people are calling it now <laughs> um you know that was very um intrinsic to us you know i grew up in Lamert park it's african-american environment um you know being proud of where we come from stuff like that um and so i went to ucla i was a part of the african student union i was a chairperson um, i did a lot of work around like prison abolition and uh, things like that and then i'm um, going to columbia for law school you know, I kind of always knew I wanted to work on reparations type of work. And that's part of the reason why I went to law school, because I wanted, you know, reparations to be taken more seriously. And I wanted to see how I could use my law degree to, you know, um, make the reparations conversation more legitimate, at least from a legal perspective. And so that's how, you know, I started taking courses around international law. Um, I even asked the vice provost of the school to... Uh, make sure that a reparations course was taught at the at the law school before I graduated and they were able to set that up. Wow. And I also studied abroad at the University of Amsterdam Law School, as you said, um, wrote a master thesis on global repertory justice uh, for people of African descent, focusing on Black Americans, Black Brazilians, even Black Colombians, kind of showing the similarities between those three groups um, as us kind of still living in our former slave societies um, still not receiving any reparations, stuff like that. And, um, yeah, so I have a master of laws in international criminal law and I pretty much leveraged that educational background, particularly the international criminal law experience, um, to apply to the task force. Mm -hmm. Um, I had graduated law school 2019, governor Newsom signed the legislation into law that created the task force in September 30th, 2020. Now, mm -hmm. any, member of the California public could apply. And so kind of the rest was history. I applied and I was appointed by uh, the speaker of the California State Assembly, Anthony Rendon. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations. Like that <laughs> is just major accomplishment. So I definitely want to, you know, just, you know, tip my hat to you. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, as a black woman striving for higher education. Um, I think that's amazing. That's a lot to unpack. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that I did want to touch on you know, is you studying abroad um, mm -hmm. at the University of Amsterdam, right? Yes. So for me, um, 
you know, I was pretty traumatized by my uh, undergrad experience. I was just like, I'm, I'm cool for right now on any pursuing any other degrees. Um, mm-hmm. But within that, um, I went to college, you know, from South Central to a small, predominantly white town. Right. Wow. So, you know, as a first generation college student at that. So the culture shock yeah. was something that I was definitely not prepared for at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And so having to navigate that as a black woman, um, in a space where, you know, you're one of few black faces mm-hmm. and then you're in another country. Yeah. How was that change for you? That's a good question. And I, I haven't I've reflected on it a bit, but it, I had similar experiences or similar feelings like that was my first time ever studying abroad. I didn't study abroad in undergrad. You know, I took a, a couple of years off between undergrad and law school because I also kind of had my own kind of experiences that I was trying to unpack mm-hmm. um, and heal from um, okay. in undergrad. So I understand that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, while I was there at Amsterdam, like it's completely, you know, majority, um, you know, white. The, the the law school itself also was majority, you know, white, international, European. So you know, some ways it was a bit ostracizing, especially when, you know, in my cohort, I'm the only one who's saying I want to, you know, write a thesis about reparations, you know. So, you what know. What were um, some of the other thesis um, ideas could you re- recall during during your time? Uh, yeah. I mean, just very, very academic, ivory tower, kind of theoretical type of thesis that really would have no... Real, real impact. impact in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So prior to your role as chair of the task force, uh, what type of work were you involved in? I was working as commercial litigator and then transitioned over to uh, entertainment law. So entertainment transactions. Okay. And so is that like what your career and goal was to be a lawyer is to be a lawyer uh yeah so i guess in terms of my um end goals like i definitely want to continue to pursue the entertainment law uh, particularly entertainment transactions in the areas of film and television so even helping um creators so for instance in uh, one of my previous jobs as an entertainment associate at a a small boutique law firm i wrote articles on how for instance black tiktok dance creators can protect their choreographic work so a lot of people don't know that that that's a a right that they have and Mm so i'm definitely interested in like using my legal skills in that entertainment space Mm -hmm. um but i also have a you know personal interest in using my law degree um, in the area of repertory justice. Uh, so, or academic I- interests, you should say. So I say my bread and butter, I hope and I intend will be entertainment law and my passion, the labor of love is a reparations piece. So when I uh, asked my uh, folks online who follow my platform, what did they wanted to hear the most about in a piece about reparations? Uh-huh. Um, what were the questions that they had? And um, a lot of people wanted to know, when does the check hit, right? (laughs) But for those of us um, who may not be familiar with that process, what exactly do you all need to do 
Um, what needs to happen after that, you know, in Congress or what have you, mm -hmm. before we even reach the point of cash disbursement? Oh, that's a great question. So the task force, we've been working for close to two years. Uh, we are a two-year legislative advisory body. Uh, so we started our work June 2021, and we end our work June 30th, July 1 of 2023, so in a couple of months. And so over this past year and a half or so, we've been studying um, the atrocities against the African-American, Black American, descendant of slave community, starting with uh, the slave trade to the institution of slavery, um, and the badges and incidents of slavery that still linger on and negatively impact our community. Um, and that study phase was memorialized in this nearly 500 page, uh, 13 chapter interim report that the task force released uh, June of 2022. So just this past year. Mm -hmm. And again, that report um, demonstrates all the different atrocities against the African-American community. Uh, from racial terror to political disenfranchisement, the unjust legal system, the wealth gap, um, racism in the environment and infrastructure, uh, separate and unequal education, uh, the uh, um, mental and physical harm and neglect, and so on and so on. And again, those are what we are calling the badges and incidents of slavery um, that justify in part uh, the reason for why reparations is owed, not only in the state of California for descendants of slaves, but federally as well. And so to answer your question more directly, um, the task force um, will release our final report uh, June 30th of this year. Um, that will be sent to the California state legislature. And then it's going to be up to the state legislature to turn our proposals into legislation. And then it's going to be up to Governor Newsom to sign the legislation into law. Um, and so that process could take, you know, a year or, or a year or so. So people are saying, you know, um, it, our proposals could be fully implemented and signed by 2024, 2025. Um, but it's, it's going to take, um, after the report is released, a critical mass of um, the Black American community and a coalition of supporters to really ensure that these proposals are implemented. Okay, so let's unpack, you know, that mm -hmm. that real quick. Um, yeah. How on board is the like legislative body, you know, of folks when it comes to reparations for African Americans? You talk about, you know, mm -hmm. your report, uh, the the task force's report. Um, being submitted to the legislative body and they have to, you know, support it. Yeah. Are they supportive of reparations for African-Americans or so, has there been a lot of pushback? Well, if there's been pushback, it hasn't been any open pushback from the California state legislature. For instance, you know, I referenced that interim 500 page report that we released in June. Uh, of 2022, uh, three weeks after we released that report, we were invited to the California state legislature and we received uh, the nine member task force. We received standing ovations from both the California state assembly chambers and the Senate chambers as you know, an act of good faith, a celebration that we had been working for a year uh, to create this study. Um, it was there. And, and just this past week actually confirmed that all of the legislators have a hard copy of that interim report. Mm. So 
Um, again, I don't, I haven't seen any open pushback and I'm hoping that that stays the case and mm -hmm. that, um, you know, as this final report is released, we see more California state legislators vocally supporting um, what we're doing um, and pledging to, you know, act on it. Okay. Online, when non-Black people leave their comments about reparations, a lot of people feel that they're going to be paying for reparations themselves to black people, like as American citizens. Mm. Where is this pot of money supposed to come from to pay black people reparations? That's a good question. And some people may not like my answer. I've thought about it. Um, but, you know, in terms of the task force, just to be clear, and we, we discussed this, I specifically asked the state of California DOJ to clarify this for uh, the public at our last hearing. And that is, you know, the task force, our responsibility is to come up with, uh, you know, recommendations for reparations, which definitely includes cash payments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our responsibility is to come up with the methodology. So we're, we've hired five economists, public policy experts, for example, to help us come up with the methodology to uh, rec uh, recommend cash payments for several different uh, state sanctioned atrocities. But it's not necessarily our job as a legislative advisory body to figure out or ascertain where the funding will come from. <laughs> that mm -hmm. is up to the legislature okay. in exercise of their political will and acumen. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, once that final report is out with the methodologies around cash payments, you know, it's going to be up to the citizens, the black community to hold their legislators accountable um, to those to the to that methodology. And then they have the responsibility to identify the funding sources as legislators. So basically, black people need to um, make sure that we are politically mobilizing and which we have been, you mm -hmm. know, but continue to po politically mobilize around the issues of reparations if you want to see them exactly. cash payments, the check hit, basically. Exactly. Um, okay, that's good information. So let's talk a little bit about the report. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the recommendations you guys, mm -hmm. you know, the task force are uh proposing in terms of reparations for African-Americans in California? Yes. So some of the recommendations include uh, in the areas of education, uh, free college tuition uh, for descendants of slaves at, at uh, state colleges and universities, um, you know, the creation of a Black um, American uh, K through 12 curriculum, so that's in the area of education. There's going to be final recommendations that correspond to each of the 13 chapters in the report. Um, so again, there's education-centered recomm recommendations. Uh, there's recommendations around the wealth gap. There's rec recommendations around health, uh, mental and physical health. Um, I believe one of them is the creation of Black wellness centers. Um there are recommendations in the areas of housing, like housing, free housing grants for descendants of slaves or, um, you know, certain types of housing subsidies for former, uh, for descendants of slaves who live in 
formerly redlined areas. Um, there is a contingent of, of, of African-Americans who are descendants of people who were actually enslaved in California. A lot of people mm -hmm. don't know that there was slavery in California. And we discussed that in our interim report in, in chapter one. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, there are, there are descendants of those slaves who have showed up to the task force hearings, who have shared their stories. And so one of the recommendations is even, you know, compensation for those direct descendants of those who were actually enslaved in California. Um, but then there's other, you know, more symbolic recommendations like a formal apology uh, on behalf of the state of California, not only for its role in slavery, but its role in, you know, anti-Black exclusion type laws uh, for discrimination against uh, the African-American community in various different segments and sectors of society. So mm -hmm. it's going to be very, very comprehensive. Uh, the draft of the co consolidated proposals you can find on the task force website, oag.ca.gov forward slash AB3121. And you'll see that it's over 100 and, 105 pages long. Mm -hmm. So there are going to be several recommendations from cash, uh, to recommendations related to rehabilitation, restitution, uh, satisfaction, and guarantees of non-repetition. And those are the five forms of reparations under international law. Um, and under international law, you cannot call a reparations program reparations unless it um, includes all five of those forms. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's definitely very comprehensive. Yeah. And um, I'm actually I'm glad to hear that because, you know, a lot of um, black people themselves say, you know, reparations for black people should go beyond just cash payments. You know, um, some like, you know, we should be pushing for some land. Is that any is yeah. that anywhere in there? Like discussions of land, you know, um, being given back to black people? Yes, that's definitely in there. Well, there's definitely in terms of recommendations for cash payment for unjust property taking. So there's a lot of African-Americans who have come and shared their stories about how their land from the from the late 1800s to now have been unjustly taken by the state via you know, a disproportionate use of eminent domain. And so uh, we're working with the economists and the public policy experts to identify what does compensation look like for that. Um, but then also you just brought up a really good point. And, you know, these recommendations are a work in pro progress. They're not final yet. And that is one of the things that I want to be more intentional about is um, the land piece. So there are, you know, um, people who have given public comment around that, um, there's an entity called the 40 Acre Conservation League that has mm. even worked with the state to to secure land. Um, and, you know, they've spoken and submitted recommendations related to reparations. So it's a lot of moving parts and it's still some time to connect the dots. But um, I, that's definitely a really important aspect, the land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's touch on briefly slavery in California, okay. um, because... You know, a story that, you know, all black Angelinos and just Los Angeles folks in general should know um, concerning, you know, the experience of black people um, in L.A. is the story, story of Biddy Mason, mm -hmm. you know, who was brought here um, with her owner and children as a slave to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Right. And then some black people who were actually in Los Angeles that were had means had told her like hey you know slavery is actually illegal in california you could take him 
to court to petition for right. your freedom, mm -hmm. which she successfully did, right? Mm -hmm. And was able to, you know, um, get out of, you know, being um, enslaved by her quote unquote master and would mm -hmm. go on to, you know, be like a midwife or, you know, work within the medical space and mm -hmm. save her money and start investing in properties in the downtown Los Angeles area, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're under the impression that, you know, slavery uh, did not exist at all in California. And mm -hmm. we have a very, you know, uh, just important story, um, you know, about this black woman coming um, able to free herself from slavery in California. Right. So. So, yeah, where does, you know, the um, stories of black people being mm -hmm. enslaved in California, where um, does that fit into the narrative that's a great question and so you know we um at the beginning of our work september 2021 invited for instance expert witnesses to speak to this very issue um and so professors like stacy smith out of oregon state university she mm. studied for instance the state of california's role um, in slavery and a lot of her work is in our interim report um and so for instance we learned through her um, and other experts that, um, you know, there were enslaved people, Black people in the state of California, up and down the state of California. Yes, um, California was admitted into the Union as a so-called free state, but that was truly only in name. Um, you know, we mentioned in the report actual stories of enslaved Black people being um, tortured and beaten um, in the state of California. Um, in the public square, so to speak, in cities like Los Angeles and Sonoma, you would not think that there was Black people who were enslaved and abused um, in those cities during slavery, um, but it's true. Also, um, after uh, two years after the state of California was admitted into the Union in 1852, they enacted a fugitive slave law. Um, which was actually much more harsher than the federal fugitive slave law. So, you know, some people say, and I, someone brought this up to me the other day, and I thought it was a brilliant analogy. Um, it was not a sanctuary state. California was not a sanctuary state for enslaved Black people, oh. uh, or, for, or or Black, for Black people in general, to oh. be quite honest, especially after um, they um, enacted that, that, that fugitive slave law. So what that meant was if you so happen to be free in California and Black, you could be um, deported and to be re-enslaved in the South, mm. or even in some instances enslaved on California soil. And even if you were free in California, your rights were significantly curtailed, um, or you could be mistaken as a slave and be deported and re-enslaved in the South. So, you know, it was a precarious situation. Um, and we revealed through, again, expert witnesses that there was in fact slavery. Um, and there's also a really good podcast. Um, ACLU NorCal has a podcast called Gold Chains, where they talk about uh, California's role in slavery. Um, they name um, the men who were brought by their white enslaver uh, from Mississippi to California to mine for gold. Mm. Um, they so happened to escape. Um, they created their own gold mining enterprise for a very short period of time, these formerly enslaved Black men. Once California enacted that fugitive slave law, they were arrested, 
um, and deported to be re-enslaved back in Mississippi. Well, legend had they had to travel through the from they had to travel like through the Gulf to get to Mississippi, but we don't know like if they ever got there. But the point is, um, you know, they were captured um, to be um, put back into slavery. So that's a story from the ACLU NorCal uh, Go Chains podcast. Very interesting. <laughs> oh, you you have mentioned Oregon, and I remember because um, uh, I went to school in Northern California, and oh, so wow. Oregon was like the next uh, state mm-hmm. up. And I remember coming across some information. Um, I think she was a professor at um, at the university in Oregon, and she was doing a whole presentation about how Oregon was like an exclusion state. Like they excluded black people from yeah. the state. Like they wanted that to be like a white area specifically. You know. Well, it's glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because we learned through Vice Chair Amos Brown, mm-hmm. who. Um, you know, many folks probably know, um, but we learned he's a historian and he said, you know, uh, the first governor of California, his name was Peter Hardiman Burnett. I believe he was once, um, you know, in Oregon politics and was responsible for those anti-Black exclusion laws passing in Oregon. And so then he became the governor of California, the first governor of California and also wanted to replicate that those same types of anti-black exclusion laws in the state of California. Oh wow, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I could definitely see that um for sure. So let's talk about how, you know, cities and states themselves are taking up the issues of reparations at a more local level as yeah. opposed to like you know just i guess the federal government in general kind of um coming up with the uh, overall like you know plan for reparations for black people in mm-hmm. the u.s um so why did the state of california and governor uh newsom become in- involved in the conversation about uh reparations and why do you think that was that's a good question. Um, how people say people have different kind of. I think there were several different factors, but uh, definitely would cite, um, you know, Secretary of State Shirley Weber uh, when she was in the State Assembly. Uh, she uh, championed this legislation. It was the idea of reparations uh, legislation was brought to her by her legislative intern, uh, Maureen Simmons, who actually to be quite honest, came into the knowledge about reparations through watching you know, the YouTube videos of Antonia Moore. Oh, wow. Um, okay, um, shouts out to them. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, brought that idea to uh, the assembly member and, you know, other grassroots organi- organizers got involved as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Governor Newsom signed the legislation into law September 30th. So the last kind of day that he could sign it in that term. He signed it, I think, due to pressure from uh, Ice Cube, I heard. <laughs> Shout uh, out to Ice Cube. Him up. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, they had a signing ceremony over Zoom for it. And so you saw in that Zoom, you know, grassroots organizers, I believe Antonio Moore as well, Ice Cube, uh, Secretary Weber. And yeah, so that is essentially kind of how it came to be. So I think it was various different factors that led to it. And then also on a more broader scale, maybe 
can bring in kind of the George Floyd uprisings um, and mm. it seems to be kind of a shift in conversation about, um, you know, um, the urgency of of now and in, you know, working towards um, policy related to reparations. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's interesting that you mentioned Ice Cube because I had a question about Ice Cube, right? <laughs> so... You know, Ice Cube, he caught a lot of uh, flack for discussing his um, his program for black America, yeah. um, you know, during like the Biden Trump, um, you know, presidency campaign. He was trying to present a plan for black people to either of, you know, the candidates, whichever one, you know, well, to both of them. And so the response that he got from Joe Biden and them was like, okay, wait till after the election. Mm. And then I guess um, he said that, I guess perhaps Trump was more open uh, to discussing maybe during that time or something. But yeah. the issue um, was that people felt that he should not be talking to Trump at all about anything to do with black people because mm. Trump's public perception at the time as being, you know, like a, a tyrant and a racist and all this other stuff. So. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Ice Cube was wrong in trying to discuss a plan for African-Americans um, with Trump, um, mm. you know, considering, again, his public perception as president? Uh, you know, I'm not a personal fan of Trump, but um, you know, I didn't agree with folks vilifying Ice Cube either. Mm. Um, you know, I think there is a place um to do what ice cube did so you know he's an american citizen he's mm -hmm. trying to use his influence for the betterment of his community and so i definitely wouldn't fault him for that at all <laughs> yeah i agree with you i um i feel like you know hey um black people you know we kind of well i guess this was a follow-up question so you know, when it comes to the issues of like reparations, I feel like this is kind of like the most like, you know, in times that I can recall, maybe beyond the issues of police brutality that we kind of see like black people on kind of like, you know, a real like same page about an issue and pushing towards that issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Like black people are pushing towards some reparations, like mm. especially the conversation. You think so? <laughs> well, in terms of just like what I see online and just like the rhetoric for sure. Like, yeah. you know, reparations is definitely um a conversation. I feel like that we're mm. all like feel is relevant to right now. Like, okay. you know, okay. um in terms of like everyone's like active involvement and showing up and things like that, I'm not sure. Right. But I can just see like, you know, the conversation definitely being continued every mm -hmm. day, every week, especially on Twitter in the Twitter space, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, so my thing is, you know, beyond like reparations or police brutality, like I don't really feel like we push the people that we have put in office to do enough for black people, you mm -hmm. know, um, specifically like the democratic party, you know, mm -hmm. I feel like mm -hmm. we, and just, we keep, you know, voting Democrat or whatever. Um, why not switch it up and go to the Republican party and see like what, if there's any tangibles mm -hmm. that could come out of that, you know, mm -hmm. like just to play devil's advocate. I'm, I'm really mm -hmm. apolitical, you know, I don't really identify with either party, right. but I will, I do see the need in politics and why you need to be involved in the conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. 
But um, I guess what I want to ask you is like, you know, how can black people leverage our voting power to mm -hmm. demand more around um, the issues that we're facing in this country uh, from the people that we're voting for, you know, spe specifically the Democratic Party. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm, That's a good question. Oh, that is a very complex question, too. Okay. <laughs> like, okay, okay. Well, uh, do you think that Black people should be demanding more for our votes? Like, do you think that we've gotten enough out of the people that we're voting for, considering mm -hmm. our conditions in this right. country, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, definitely not. Um, you know, with Democrats, we vote majority Democrats, but we're obviously generally unsatisfied. And so I do think that it's going to take, um, you know, a critical mass of folks in the Black community to, to stay politically engaged from local politics to state to even national and have different conversations with different groups from Democrats to Republicans to third parties. Right. Um, but with the same kind of goal in mind to get all these different groups, at least closer to uh, supporting tangibles, uh, reparations, cash payments, and the other forms of reparations that are international law as much as possible. And the arguments might be different. You might say to the Democrats, you know, we've been a loyal voting bloc for this many years. Mm. For Republicans, they don't support reparations, but you can say, well, let's look back at the history of radical Republicans. It was the radical Republicans who were in favor of reconstruction. Right. Um, things like that. I'm not saying that it could, it will work, but you know, third party, you might have a different conversation. Mm -hmm. But again, I guess it's going back to the point you were making. It's like, it's okay to be um, apolitical, so to speak, um, to get kind of where, what you need to, to get. Um, but I will say, you know, um, was majority Democrats um, in the state of California who passed this legislation that created the reparations task force. There was some Republican support as well. Okay. So... Um, bipartisan support for reparations is possible. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned reconstruction, which I think is great because, um, I definitely wanted to touch on the reconstruction era, you know, okay. <laughs> um, which I think is extremely important in terms of, you know, just like understanding the lack of assistance that was provided to African-Americans coming out of slavery. Right. Mm -hmm. And the ways that like, you know, we were completely disenfranchised during slavery, like, you know, um, yeah. just being exploited through our labor to enrich, you know, the people or well, the white people who own these plantations and things like that. Mm -hmm. Then you talk about coming out of slavery in a capitalist society mm -hmm. without, you know, any like um, money, land, anything. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So can you just touch on briefly what the reconstruction era was and what was supposed to happen during mm -hmm. that time for us? Yeah. So the reconstruction era was, um, you know, a, a, a short space in time in history, uh, soon after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the enactment of the 13th Amendment mm -hmm. uh, that freed all slaves with the exception of punishment for crime. And that's a whole nother story. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, you did have radical Republicans um, in office. You had the most black men uh, elected into office Congress ever in this nation's history. 
Uh, you had a landmark transformative legislation enacted like the Freedmen's Bureau and the Freedmen's Bank. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau um, in part was responsible for um, you know, providing land. Um, and that's where the idea of 40 acres and the mule came from. Uh, General Sherman's uh, special uh, field of order number 15. Uh, you can look into the records from the Freeman's Bureau that says, for instance, um, you know, Michael Brown, you are um, heretofore given, you know, 40 acres of land on the Seaford plantation where you formerly were enslaved. So they had allotted the pieces of land. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. And reneged on the whole situation. And reneged. And reneged. And again, there is records where you can see that written down. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was so transformative when I saw it. I'm like, whoa, even the piece where it says, like, you you were given this land on the land that you were once a slave. Right. Like, that's deep. Right. And so that was a, a really brief period in time in history where, um, you know, land was starting to be given, you know, aid was being given, freedmen schools were being um, created, freedmen hospitals were being created. You had the Freedmen's Bank, even though um, it was ran by white people, they completely robbed it. There was no FDIC, um, you know, insurance at the time. So you had millions of newly freed slaves putting their savings into this bank and it was completely robbed. The United States government has not atoned for that at all. So Reconstruction wasn't um, all roses. And we've, and we've never been in a great position in this country as a sit and to slave. But, you know, people hearken back to the Reconstruction era because it was a, a, a point in time where there was government um, acknowledging that there was a responsibility uh, to assist um, transition these people from slavery to freedom. Um, and there was actual action taken by it, by the creations of, is, of institutions um, to help us become self-sufficient, similar to what still exists today that's over 100 years old, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, for instance. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So, um, you know, like... With all of the pushback that black people get about slavery is really interesting because, you know, America has paid reparations to other groups in this mm -hmm. country, including, um, you know, the Native Americans. Because I see that a lot. They'd be like, oh, um, you know, oh, black people getting reparations. What about the Native Americans? I'd be like, they already got reparations. <laughs> I mean, you know, not saying that it's, you know, conducive to what has happened, but they receive something that they feel is, you know, like... Mm -hmm. Um, enough, at least, you know, for right now, even though it's, you know, some whole issues still in, you know, the, it's a lot of issues in how the Native Americans are treated in this country still. Yes. Um, but okay. <laughs> so I definitely want to get into a little bit about black people's issues being conflated with other people's issues. And like, mm -hmm. does that, you know, cause a lot of black people are really upset about that, you know, in terms yeah. of like, we always have to say black and brown kind of thing. Right. Um, what are your, what is your opinion on that whole, cause people were mad that it's only descendants of slaves who are eligible, not black immigrants. So I did have a question about that too. Right. Uh, I mean, okay. but you want to know how I feel about that? How do I feel about I'm personally saddened to see this deep divide between African-Americans and African immigrants. Mm -hmm. I can understand how 
you know, there's like cultural differences, right? You know, in terms of like, you grew up in Africa, we grew up here in America, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not understanding why a lot of black people, um, and I'm saying black loosely, African immigrants and African Americans, everybody like mm -hmm. across the diaspora, right? Like why we don't see ourselves as like distant relatives or distant right. cousins, right? I'm just like, um, and so I know, you know, Black people growing up, you know, would tease African immigrants. So, okay, that's like an issue there. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like, I also, as I got older, began to realize that a lot of African immigrants don't see themselves as African Americans and they want to mm -hmm. make sure that there's a clear distinction between like, you know, I'm an African immigrant and that's an African American over there, you know? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it has a lot to do with, of course, like, you know, America's stereotypes. The stereotypes, right, of black people, you know, which is so deep. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm personally saddened and I feel like black people, African Americans, specifically in America, catch a lot of hell because we don't really have like a country to attach ourselves to right mm. so you talk about like the asians able to get this asian hate crime bill mm. um you know and i think a lot of it has to do with they have a country that they're attached to that america has interest in the relationship you mm. know oh, that's how i feel and so i mean i know that's a lot but overall um i'm saddened um i could see why black people african-americans feel like african immigrants who were in africa mm -hmm. don't deserve reparations because they weren't technically here in the country mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know to experience that mm -hmm. and um and then a lot of africans come up come here and are able to somehow quick seem more quicker to get mm -hmm. a footing maybe because they're not tied to that legacy of slavery mm -hmm. they're not tied to those like stereotypes of african-americans mm -hmm. and uh, black people african-americans have issues with that they see that difference you know mm -hmm. and um africans being more palatable for white america yeah even though them also experiencing anti-blackness because that's at the core of the issues is blackness you know and the stereotypes and the racism um the anti-black racism so right, right. yeah you're on point <laughs> um so i can understand all of that you know um but i do think that you know i think pan-africanism does play an important role in where mm. black people like in terms of like political ideology yeah. i don't think african-americans have a, a a standing if we don't include ourselves in a pan-african situation you know to mm -hmm. unite with african people beyond like america right you know so that's just my perspective on that yeah, yeah. but um so you know as chair of the task force i think it would be important um that we briefly touch on you know how has the task force determined who's going to be eligible for reparations yeah so in march of 2022 uh the task force uh, decided via a 5-4 decision. So it was a very, you know, contested debate that lasted over 10 months, to be honest, Ten around months. who should be eligible. Should it be based on race? So all Black Californians, there's 2.5 million Black Californians, I think about 300,000 or so um, of, of immigrant origin. Um, and so via a 5-4 decision, we decided to affirm lineage. So that's what we were calling it at the time. Uh, lineage-based reparations rather than race-based reparations. So, you know, of the 2.5, uh, 
you know, about 2.2, 2.3 million black people will be eligible um, in the state of California. So the vast majority of, of, of black people will be eligible in the state of California because, you know, the vast majority of black folks in the state of California are descendants of slaves. So if you're a descendant of slaves, essentially you will be eligible via the decision that we made. Okay. And so how... How will black people begin to trace their lineage, you know, with all of the records kind of being like yeah. destroyed or not kept, you know, even though we do have like ancestry and things like that, like, are there going to be like additional tools maybe provided yeah. to help um, black people trace their lineage? Well, um, one of the recommendations is to create um, a new state agency. So now I liken to you know the Bureau of Indian Affairs or the Office of Immigrant Affairs. It would be you know a new state agency that's for descendants of slaves to provide direct services, repertory justice services, wraparound services where they don't exist to descendants of slaves. Um, and one of those particular branches could be, uh, we were recommending a genealogy branch. We um, enlisted six different expert genealogists to, uh, before we made the decision around eligibility, we invited them to speak. Uh, one of them being the uh, lead genealogist at the National Assembly, sorry, the National uh, um, History of African-American History Museum, excuse me, um, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. We invited her, Hollis Gentry and others um, to help us inform around like how feasible is it to go with the lineage based eligibility standard. And they provided various different recommendations for how, um, you know, folks could be eligible um, with genealogy. Um, and so I guess the idea of having a genealogy branch is that, you know, it's, it's going to be the state, um, in recognition, um, of reparations to provide the tools, the resources to assist those, um, with eligibility. So it's not like people are going to have to do the work themselves, come out of pocket, stuff like that. It will be up to, um, you know, the state to assist in that. Okay, good. Because I know that was um, a lot of uh, concern. That was a concern that a lot of Black folks had as well in terms of like, how exactly are we going to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, prove mm -hmm. our ancestry? So um, you were also on a panel about reparations at the Revolt Summit mm -hmm. um, with folks like Tariq Nasheed and I think like Riza Islam yeah. and some other people. Erica Alexander. Erica Alexander, uh, right. Killer Mike, mm -hmm. Teslin Figaro, and um, Van Lathan was the host. Nice. Mm -hmm. So um, what was that like and how important is black media in the push for reparations? I think it was a great panel. It was a great experience. Um, I think the highlight for me, I was able to inform everyone about uh, the five forms of reparations under international law. Uh, so that spread a lot. So I'm glad now that's kind of more in the kind of atmosphere. Um, people kind of know, okay, reparations is, is cash, but it's also this, this, that, and that, you know? Um, and then also in terms of black media, I think black media is so important um, now more than ever um, you know most of the time you know black folks we consume media uh, more often than a lot of different groups and we're starting to become a lot more creative about how we use media and how we consume media um, and so to the extent that 
you know, Black media starts getting more involved in spreading awareness about reparations, I think the better it can accelerate the movement as well. And what I said at the Revolt panel too, you know, I'm also in favor of Black celebrities um, using their influence to spread awareness. That that caused kind of a debate um, at the panel um, that I guess lingered on even after the panel. People were talking about what is the role of Black celebrity in the reparations movement. You know, and I talked about back in the 60s, you had the Black Panther Party. They're the ones who were protesting outside of James Brown uh, concerts when they said he was cooning. And then, you know, they were able to get him to make Say Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. You know, you had Aretha Franklin. She had a whole people just found out uh, an FBI dossier on her and her, um, you know, um, activist activities. You had, you know, um, celebrities like Muhammad Ali and, um, you know, so many other people, black celebrities who really used uh, uh, their their influence uh, for the civil rights movement at the time. So why not the reparations movement? I think there's a space for everyone in this movement. I like that. <laughs> and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you're definitely right about the black, you know, black celebrities and icons using their um, you know, status in different ways during the civil rights movement to support black people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as a black woman, as you know, black woman in media with my own platform, yeah. you know, I um, you know, I'm speaking directly to black people, you know, but um it's social media and for some reason, you know, a lot of people are interested. A lot of people are really nosy. They want to just see like what, what you got going on. Right. Mm -hmm. So they really want, then they start thinking that they can police your black space. Right. And I'm just like, first of all, I'm not even talking to you. I don't even know why you're over here. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But now that you're here, hopefully you learn something. Right. But you know, um, you know, growing up in South central, um, and just, you know, especially like throughout the years, you know, um, it's becoming, um, it's always been like multicultural, but now it just seems like black people are hanging on by a thread in South Central, right? And so um, I have um, a very diverse, you know, audience. Mm-hmm. And so me understanding that audience and understanding the community and understanding, you know, there are levels of intersectionality mm-hmm. of our issues, right? But the issues aren't necessarily the same. They don't, you know, they there's similarities and we, we, we do experience them, um, you know, in the community, but they manifest in different ways, mm-hmm. um, you know, and are compounded, um, with the issues of blackness. So if you're a POC, but you know, you're more like, uh, light skin, right. you know, you're having, you're experiencing <laughs> oppression in a different way than me as a black woman mm-hmm. in South central. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, um, but I can understand other people's experience and I can understand the immigrant experience and, you know, um, folks coming from other countries, you know, because um, America's foreign policy is over there in y'all country, like just running amok and messing it. up yeah. the infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. To where y'all can't even, you know, provide for your families, you know, based. So I understand, you know, coming to America because they over there messing y'all country up, right? Mm-hmm. But I, what I'm seeing is like, I'm not seeing the same level mm-hmm. of consideration or understanding 
for the black experience when mm-hmm. it from other a lot of other POC groups, you know, right. um, and that's not all of them, you know, um, that's, you know, um, I am in community with some, you know, some very um, educated and, you know, um, understanding people. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, I can see the comments and I can see, you know, just the social media responses when black people are advocating for our specific issues. Right. right. And um, just <laughs> I made this post the other day um, about should black people receive reparations for um the crack epidemic or the war on drugs or something it was like an article that um a collaboration piece that i did with um with mochafi this um new like banking app geared toward geared towards black and brown folks here in la um but anyways i um i posted that and Somebody came and was like, you know, Latinos have also been impacted by, you know, and I'm just like, well, you're a Latino person. You can go and create the conversation, you know, yeah. yourself. Like, why do you feel why are you putting so much pressure on me right. as a black woman to always include right. you when when y'all talk about your issues? It's specific to your group. Mm. You know, even when we talk about the issues of immigration, mm. black immigrants are like completely left out in a lot of instances. Yeah. Where they have to create their own organizations. <laughs> right. You know? Mm-hmm. And so even within the reparations talk, you know, there's a lot of pushback from other POC groups, you know, um, who are triggered, like triggered, you know? And I'm just like, I don't remember. I don't know. I'm not even going to go there, you know, in terms of like pushback from black people, because I'm sure wherever you look, you can find issues. Right. right. But moral of the story is there's a lot of pushback from our, our POC groups but then at that same time, uh, when it comes to reparations for black people, but at the same time, mm. we are gaslighted into including everybody into our groups, you know. Um, so how do you feel about that? <laughs> do you feel that, you know, should we be laser focused specifically on issues of, you know, mm-hmm. impacting black people, even though they intersect with other you know, groups in some capacities? Um, or do you think that, you know, we should be focused on allies and coalition building and mm-hmm. you know just um a multicultural approach mm-hmm. to really like shift things in america so great no that question. was a lie right <laughs> it was great though it was really great i'll say it's i think there's several different things that could happen at once well i like into you know you can have several different priorities that certain priorities are going to be higher than others okay. so you know me personally speaking my priority is you know specifically fighting for reparations for descendants of slaves mm-hmm. um you know and then you know there's coalition building that can happen within that right um you know um but then also, I'm also in favor as well as, you know, being in coalition for others and the issues that they're working on uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another piece to it, but I forgot. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think, again, it's okay to have priorities. Everyone else has priorities. Right. We can have priorities too. And, you know, Vice Chair Amos Brown, he says this a lot. The house is on fire. You know, our house is on fire, so yeah. it's okay to focus on putting our the fire out of our house. Um, we have every right to do that at this point. 
Most definitely. <laughs> yes, do not um, be gaslighting Black people. San Francisco proposing a $5 million one-time payment to you know, mm -hmm. SF, uh, black residents. And, um, it came up before, before the board of supervisors and it was like this huge thing. And I guess the board of supervisors was supposedly like, um, supportive of this. That's what I was seeing. And, um, after that, um, uh, we saw the San Francisco NAACP put out a statement <laughs> and say that they reject and then reject. It was like in right at the top in red. It was like, we reject this idea. I'm like, wow, this is the NAACP talking about they reject $5 million payments for black people. How? You know yeah. what I'm saying? How? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so, you know, in the black community, you know, like there's, um, there's also like, you know, issues of classism and wealth gaps within the black community, you know, educational gaps, right? Yeah. And so um, a lot of black people feel like, you know, there's like this hierarchy of black people within the community who um, feel that they are better equipped to, mm. you know, distribute um, resources and funds to like the rest of the niggas, excuse my right. language, no, but that's yeah. probably what they up there saying to the rest <laughs> of the, to the rest of the pookies and Ray Rays, because that's mm. what they really call disenfranchised black men which i think is bizarre you know for I've, I've heard it several times um black people in politics um mm, refer yeah, to right. you know them in the hood as pookie and ray rays mm -hmm. i'm like that's some real even messed up president shit. obama did that once, said that once. oh yeah. yeah go call pookie yeah, and ray ray right i was like so yeah. that's that kind of rhetoric i'm talking about yeah. like for them to even be calling other black people, Pookie and Ray Ray, mm -hmm. there's this like, you know, we feel like we're uh, above. Uh, above, you know, you niggas over here, right? Mm -hmm. And so when the NAACP in San Francisco released that statement, that's what came to mind. And I seen like a lot of folks were also saying like, you know, cause they were like, um, basically, you know, y'all should steer those resources to these specific areas of focus. Yeah. And I think it also mentioned maybe putting some of the funds into a center that um, mm. one of the people, I think maybe he's on the board of supervisors or he's in the NAACP, oh black guy, right? Mm -hmm. Bizarre. So I guess what I want to ask you is like, um, do you still, do you see issues of like classism and, you know, um, in the black community, yeah. in the work that you do? I think, I think that's true. I think there's definitely a conversation around classism. And that's like the subtext when that press release uh, was sent from the San Francisco NAACP. Like, you can't blame anyone for, you know, feeling that way. Because um, that's definitely the, the vibe it came off. Like you said, it was all red letters <laughs> rejecting $5 million for blacks. Uh, <laughs> how, Sway, how? And then, like, the substance of the letter was like, um, you know, we should support these programmatic areas. And so, you know, again, under international law, which, you know, is my expertise, it's the victim group collectively that really decides and dictates what repair looks like to them. So I think that's why people have, um, you know, that's why I think that it like kind of blew up in the press because it seemed like it's like this kind of top down approach, like someone preaching to you, so to speak, in terms of like what reparations should look like to you. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, I, um, Vice Chair Amos Brown, you know, working with him for close to two years now, 
um, with the state task force. He's consistently been in favor of cash payments. And so when I saw that press release, I was also taken aback, but I also wanted to ask more questions mm. before I just went and vilified him and, you know, um, like I've seen others do. Mm-hmm. And so when I, you know, asked questions, his cell phone number was on both press releases, the first one and the second one where he provided more clarity. Um, so he, anyone could call him to get that, that clarification. Um, you know, and he said this in the public and it was, you know, say that if you call him, he's consistently in favor of cash payments. That's been his track record on the state task force as well. Uh, but again, when you ask why, 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 why did you say you reject that five million? He was essentially um, stating that um, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, in his opinion, um, you know, had real no real intention of actually um, making that a reality—a five million dollar one one time lump sum payment. And so, in his opinion, you know, he felt as if. Um, the, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and the San Francisco committee member who proposed that $5 million uh, was given false hopes to Black people. <laughs> Another point Dr. Brown mentioned was that they just threw the number out there. They didn't come up with the formula or rationale behind it. Not saying that you necessarily need it, but going back to the state task force, we're working with a team of five economists and public policy experts because we know this is a serious issue. Um, that deserves serious study. And we want to be prepared um, when the reparations obstructionists and detractors come. We want to have all our ducks in a row. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I think Dr. Brown was coming from. But, you know, with social media, it turns into a a witch hunt, so to speak. And but he also has taken accountability that that first press release was not not well uh, written in any way. (laughs) Triggering. Yeah. Triggering. Okay, definitely. So, you said the task force submits their final proposal in June? Mm -hmm. June 30th, July 1. Okay. So, we have a hearing coming up uh, March 29th and 30th. That'll be one of the last real opportunities for people to kind of, everyone, you can stay calling in. So let me track, pack track. We have a hearing March 29th and 30th. We have a hearing on May 2nd. And then our last hearing will be June 30th. Um, and so I say the March 29th and 30th hearing, that's going to be one of the last opportunities for people to call in or show up in person to really contribute to what's going to be in that final report. Because May 2nd, we're going to start voting on all the contents of the report so that the California DOJ can get to drafting. And then June 30th, we're pretty much, the report will be done. We're going to be celebrating and we're going to be gaveling out, so to speak. So this March 29th and 30th is super, super important for folks to to get engaged and participate in. Public comment is going to be two hours long. Usually they've been less than an hour, excuse me. And so we've extended the public comment because we really want to make sure that uh, we hear from as many community members as possible. Okay. Mm-hmm. And last question before we close out. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel a sense of responsibility in your role to, you know, make sure that, you know, these reports are thorough and that you are clear and representing the um the plan for reparations 
Yeah. I mean, definitely personal responsibility because, again, this is like a labrella for me. I studied this um, even before studying it. You know, I've been an organizer and an activist around issues related to reparations. And so, you know, I do definitely feel like it's my personal responsibility to help the state get this right. Um, but I think also just as a task force member as well, uh, we're the first state in the nation, only nation, start, only state in the nation to go this far. Um, and so the idea is that we most likely will be setting a precedent for what other states can do, but not only that, for what reparations could look like on the federal level as well. So, you know, people say so goes California, so goes the nation. Um, and all eyes are watching us as well. So, you know, I'm hoping that, um, you know, we're able to uh, satisfy the entire descendant community. Um, and then it's going to be up to the descendant community after the task force sunsets July 1 to pretty much take us all the way to the finish line, which <laughs> is making sure these proposals turn into actual uh, legislation and then into law. And how can um, the black community, you know, keep on top of that and make sure that, you know, we do see reparations in the end. Mm -hmm. So uh, definitely, um, you know, follow the task force, show up to the hearings. There are several different community organizations as well that are doing great work. You know, one of them is an organization um, that the task force selected to help um, do listening session for the community. That's the Coalition for Just and Equitable California. So I would just say stay tapped in. Uh, to what the task force is doing, stay engaged and start joining uh, organizations that are supporting reparations. Okay. Any closing thoughts? Any last thoughts? Um, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, great questions yeah. and happy to do this anytime. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate, appreciate your time. Like this episode? Leave a review and stay up to date on new episodes by subscribing to Slauson Girl Speaks. And follow Slauson Girl on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook.